Uh, You've already heard half my sermon from Mr. Ames today, so I should have just given him my notes and said, carry on, sir. I was going to talk about the new moon, or the full moon, and uh, so forth. The problem of having lunch together and discussing sermon topics and so forth, you see. So you already know what my sermon's about today. The book of Esther. But why talk about the book of Esther? Obviously, as you've heard, we had a beautiful full moon on Thursday night, which you couldn't see unless you were up at 3 o'clock in the morning because it was raining Thursday night, right? So you could only see it Friday morning. But if you were out last night, you would have been able to see it in all of its glory. And very, very nice. So uh, Thursday was the start of the 14th day of Adar. So it's just one month until the 14th of Nisan, which, of course, will be the Passover. So most of us have already started making plans for the Passover and the Days of Unleavened Bread. Uh, we have. I know where I'll be. And uh, all of those things are in, in hand already. And many of you have probably made arrangements for the uh, night to be much remembered. And do you know who is going to come? And you've probably got an idea of where people will sit at the table or what will be served, etc. All of those things uh, start to become part of our planning for this period of year. But so often as we approach the Passover, problems arise that seem to loom larger than normal. Mr. Dixon talked a little bit about that in the sermonette. And... uh, Yeah, we get to feel really crummy, don't we? And it's not in terms of our physical health that we're feeling crummy. It is our spiritual health. And uh, part of the reason why these become uh, obvious is because we're examining ourselves. And if you're anything like me, when I examine myself, I'm not particularly happy with what I see. Right? Am I alone in that? I don't believe so. Most of us don't like what we see. Most of us would like to say, I'd like to be something else. I wish the kingdom of God would come so that I could be changed and I could get rid of all the things I don't like about myself. Um, I could be a different being, a spiritual being, filled with God's character. So we see sins or shortcomings that have been part of our lives for a long time. We don't seem to be able to shake them off, overcome them, put them behind us. And of course, that can lead to an element of discouragement if we're not careful and remain focused on the great hope that we have. So the Passover we'll keep in a little under a month's time, should be a time in a special way of rejoicing at the power of the God family to save us. Rejoicing that this present evil world will not continue. That it is coming to an end. And there is hope, as we heard in the announcements. There is hope for humanity, for all humanity. Not just for me. Thursday at sunset, as we heard, 
was not just the beginning of the month before Passover. It was also the start of a festival that Mr. Ames referred to that is recorded in the book of Esther. Now I'd like to ask you, how many of you have read the book of Esther in the last year? Good. It's probably only about 20%, but well done. How many of you were living university students? Well, we won't ask that. (laughs) Required to do so. But uh, the book of Esther is a uh, very uh, appropriate book to uh, be aware of at this point in time as we approach the Passover period of time. This festival, the festival that is recorded in the book of Esther, the festival of Purim, occurs in such close proximity to Passover. It's not one of the festivals that is recorded in the uh, Leviticus chapter 23. It's not required of us. But the Jews, of course, celebrate it because of their deliverance from Haman and the edict of death that was uh, dictated to them at that period of time. But yet, very little is made of the book of Esther. Part of that is because of the way in which the world sees Esther. The attitude of people to the book of Esther is shaped by a couple of reasons. And so you pick up a commentary on Esther, and some of these reasons will hit you right away at the beginning. It's noted that two principal problems in, you might say, even some of the older commentaries exist with the book of Esther. Firstly, the name of God is never mentioned in the book. Yet the name of king, the king of Persia, Ahasuerus, occurs some 127 times. So where's God in this book? So people ask, what is this book doing in the Bible when the name Elohim or the eternal are never mentioned? People worry that the absence of the name of God makes a book Irrelevant, not appropriate. Secondly, people look at the book and see that it's obviously not referenced directly in the New Testament. Hence, in the past, Protestant commentators, starting with Martin Luther, have questioned its validity. Should it really be in Scripture? But the problem is it is in Scripture. We can't discard it. That's not my prerogative. It's not your prerogative. Uh, Our dear friend Martin Luther felt felt he had that prerogative. Uh, You might say the attitude towards the book of Esther by many Protestants uh, was summed up or was, you might say, founded and stimulated by uh, Martin Luther. He was noted as stating, I could wish that the book of Esther did not exist at all. For it Judaizes too greatly and has much pagan impropriety. So obviously the idea of Judaizing was a problem for Martin Luther because he didn't like the book of James for the same reason. He'd like to take his uh, 
pinking shears or as scissors to the Bible and cut out certain books because they had no relevance in his mind. Now, of course, Martin Luther didn't say that. I'm reading a translation of what Martin Luther said in German. And not being able to speak German to you, I shall use the English translation for you. In addition, in addition to those two points, you and I now live in the 21st century. The late 20th century and this century have brought their own problems to the book of Esther. Because feminists take issue with the book of Esther over the treatment of women in it. And this irredeemable patriarchy that you heard about last week. That is expressed in the book of Esther. So let me quickly deal with the first aspect or an aspect of the first point I raised at this point in time. We'll deal with these three questions as we proceed through. Uh, the sermon this afternoon. With the first concern, it's been noted by some that the name of the Eternal does appear some four times in the book, but as an acrostic. You say, what's an acrostic? Well, that's a Hebrew literary device whereby the first letter of the word forms the subsequent letter of uh, the name. So the first letter would have the Y, the second letter would start with the He, the third letter with the Vav, and the fourth letter with the uh, He to make up the Eternal's name, and so forth. If this occurs four times in the book of Esther, but the problem is, on some occasions, it's backwards. And... If we take ourselves back to the time when the book of Esther was written and placed in the Bible, how many people had a copy of the Bible and were able to sit there and look at it and work out that the name of the Eternal was an acrostic? Very, 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 very few. Because most people listened to the word being read. And of course, in this day and age, it means absolutely nothing to most of you because most of you don't know what a, a, a vav or a he looks like in Hebrew. And if I were to pass out a sheet of Hebrew uh, Esther for you this afternoon, you would look at it and fold it and put it in your briefcase maybe and ignore it because it means nothing to you. So in reality, you might say the book is very, very silent about the name of God. Very silent. And the efforts by some to try and find it are uh, trying to justify. I think by the time we finish this afternoon, you will understand the reason that the book of Esther is in God's word in a very powerful way. And uh, so that is my intention. Let's return, though, in starting to the proximity of this Feast of Purim, Purim, to which the book of Esther is related, to Passover. One month separates the two. It's interesting because the parallels between the book of Esther and the original Passover are numerous to consider. 
As most of you probably didn't read the book of Esther on Thursday night or this morning, let's start by quickly flicking through the various chapters and put the book of Esther back into mind so that we know where we are. The first chapter of the book of Esther sets a scene for us. Ahasuerus, the king, who we know as Xerxes I, the king of Persia, provides a wonderful feast to show off his wealth and his greatness. He demands that his queen Vashti, who has been having a parallel feast for all the ladies, all the women of the land, he demands that his queen appear before all of these drunken sots after they have been feasting for seven days and imbibing probably much too much alcohol at the same time. She was to appear to display her beauty. She refuses, and the consequence of chapter 1, the chapter 1 ends with Vashti being removed from her queenship. We don't know how uh, she was removed or what happened to her, but her queenship was abolished. Why? Because the book tells us, Esther chapter 1 tells us, of all the women of the land, hear what Vashti has done. They will rebel against their husbands. So to preserve the nation, she must be removed. The queen disobeys a king. What license does that give to every other woman in the land? And so uh, a justification for the removal of her is given. Chapter 2 deals with the selection of a new queen. We're introduced to Esther. We're also introduced to her uncle, Mordecai, and the circumstances of their lives. At the end of chapter 2, Mordecai becomes aware of a plot to dispose of Ahasuerus, and he reports it to the appropriate authorities. The plot is foiled, and Mordecai's contribution is entered into the annals of the kings of Persia. So ends chapter 2. Chapter 3, we're introduced to the villain of the book, Haman. If you've gone to the synagogue on Thursday evening, a raucous situation develops because every time Haman is mentioned in the synagogue, people stump their feet, whistle, get out griggers, and make all sorts of noise to uh, show their disregard for this vile character. Haman's name is mentioned in the reading of Esther. They respond to it. Everyone goes berserk. So, uh, we're not only introduced to Haman, but we're also introduced to his order of the destruction of the Jews because of Mordecai's refusal to bow down and pay homage to him. Chapter 4 deals with initial plans of salvation. How were the Jews going to be saved from this edict that Haman has been able to bring about with the king's agreement? So... We will look at some of the material in that as we proceed. In chapter 5, we have Esther preparing the first of two banquets for the king. 
Chapter 6, Mordecai is honored because of his role in disclosing the attempted coup d'etat. And Haman is called upon to lead his nemesis, Mordecai, through the streets of Shushan, with Mordecai arrayed in the king's clothes, riding the king's own beast. Quite remarkable. Chapter 7 describes the second banquet of which Haman, as the villain, is exposed. Chapter 8 deals with the ultimate salvation of the Jews, and chapter 9 deals with the establishment of the Feast of Purim, with chapter 10 concluding with a note about the king. So now you know all the characters, or you're reminded of all the characters if you have not read the book of Esther in the last year or so. Ahasuerus, or Xerxes the king, Vashti, his first queen, Esther, Mordecai, Haman, and a few other people are named along the way. As I said, if you read the book, and I hope I will stir you to uh, think about this book, you'll realize that there's a great degree of commonality between the book of Esther and the situation of the book of Exodus. Because in both cases, the people, God's people, are in captivity. And, secondly, their future is threatened with annihilation. If you kill off all the male children, as the pharaohs sought to do in Egypt, recorded in Exodus chapter 1, you have infanticide. And eventually the nation will disappear. The nation is lost. What Haman was proposing in Persia was not infanticide, but total genocide. The same result. The nation is lost forever. In both cases, in the book of Esther and the book of Exodus, an Israelite ends up as part of a royal household. Moses was adopted by Pharaoh's daughter. In the book of Esther, of course, Hadassah, which was her Hebrew name, Esther herself ends up as being the queen of the reign. And you might say that a fourth similarity is that deliverance is given at the expense of those who sought to destroy the people of God. So there are some really fascinating similarities. And I will leave it to you to read them and consider these similarities that exist between the Passover and the book of Esther. I'll lead you to another one as we go along. We look at the book of Esther, the points that we've raised today, will be mentioned, have an application to us today. It's as though we live in a world in which the very name of the very knowledge of God and Jesus Christ wishes to be snuffed out. They sent a, an article to uh, some of the men yesterday about a situation in uh, Harvard in which a Christian organization was put on, on probation because they had refused to allow a lesbian to be part of their organization. 
So now we have the university trying to tell Christianity what it must believe and how it must act. And that is just one of numerous events happening like this around the world at the present time. So the future of humanity is threatened, you might say, in the book of of Esther. Humanity is facing that same problem today. It's not just annihilation for us. Ultimately speaking, it's annihilation for all humanity. As Christ said to his disciples, unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved alive. It's not infanticide we're dealing with at present time. It's not genocide. It is a total annihilation of humanity. One difference from the book of uh, Esther that we do not have today is we do not have, you might say, an Israelite leading as part of a royal house of a world-ruling nation. I know we have Americans and we have uh, people in the government here who may trace themselves back to uh, the Davidic line, and the same with Britain and the Queen, but they are not world-ruling nations in the way in which Egypt was, or Persia was. Uh, But certainly we have one piece of hope. Jesus Christ is going to intervene at the end, and deliverance is going to be given at the expense of those who sought to destroy. You can read Zechariah chapter 14. You read those details. If there's another big difference I'd like to draw to your attention between the Passover and the book of Exodus, and the book of uh, Esther, between these two books. In Egypt, the Eternal orchestrates everything. He tells Moses what to do. Go tell Pharaoh. Go meet Pharaoh here. And Moses responds. He knows exactly what the Eternal is going to do from the message he's given to him. The Eternal is front and center. He is managing the stage from the center of the stage. He's visible to anybody reading the account of the Exodus. Moses is, you might say, a bit player. He's simply the eternal's messenger. He's not doing it himself. He has another message for the uh, eternal to deliver to the children of Israel. And he goes and tells the children of Israel. Moses is an actuator. Many ways of what the eternal has commanded and done. Moses simply does what the eternal tells him. And the eternal provides the miraculous events that follow. Time after time. We have to admit that in the book of Exodus, the eternal is very much front stage. It is, we've already heard from the book of Esther. The eternal appears to be absent. His name is not there. He doesn't seem to be on the stage. If he is, he must be behind a curtain somewhere, out of sight. Somewhere hidden from view. Esther, Mordecai, and the rest of the Jews appear to be on their own. This is a major lesson that I see and I'd like to focus on today. Because as we approach Passover, 
we would love to see the eternal intervene to take care of our problems, right? Solve our problems for us. We'd like to see his kingdom established to solve the problems. And yet, it's not going to happen this year, brethren. What we understand of God's word, it's not going to happen this year. The problems are going to continue. We, each of us, each of us would like the eternal to intervene in our life to uh, straighten out something, straighten out a relationship, straighten out a problem we face, a problem we need to overcome, remove some obstacle or some discouragement that we have in our lives. I think each and every one of us would have a quite easily take out a piece of paper and start to make a list of the things we would like the eternal to change in our life, starting right now. Correct? And most of us have spent time on our knees with maybe tears in our eyes asking the eternal for relief. And it doesn't happen. Is the eternal absent? Is his arm shortened that it cannot save? Not at all. Not at all. At first, when we're called into the understanding of God's way, the eternal may appear very active in our lives. I've heard so many cases of people coming into God's church and having wonderful miracles in their lives. Problems that they've faced resolved whether it was in terms of their employment, various other aspects of their lives. They have miracles relating to numerous parts of their lives, healings, etc. You could probably create a list yourself from your own experience. And I've talked to people who, years down the line, wonder, why doesn't the Eternal heal me today the way in which he did when he first called me. Why doesn't he answer my prayers in that exact same way? Years down the line, when we need God to intervene in our lives for, say, healing or for other problems, it doesn't happen the same way it did at the beginning. And so people ask the question at times, where is God in these circumstances? We want God to handle our trials. But he's not obvious in the way he might have been at the very beginning. That doesn't mean that he's not in control of the situation. We would love to see God zapping our trials, removing difficulties, providing physical intervention in our lives and those of his people. This, to my mind, is what the book of Esther really addresses. The fact of God's intervention and how God intervenes for us. How does God intervene in the difficulties we face? How does he expect us to understand his intervention? We need to start with an appreciation that we don't see things in a perfect manner. We so often look at the circumstances in life and what we see are problems. We're a little like Elisha's servant 
who got up one morning and saw the army of the Aramean camped around the city and said, Oh, this is a bad day. I'm not going to see this day out. I'm likely to die on the end of a lance or a sword. This is the last day of my life, and it's going to be a very sad one. Because all he could see was what he could see with his own physical eyes. So Second Kings chapter 6 and verse 15 we have this from the stories about Elisha and Elisha's involvement as a man of God. And so uh, he said, alas, my master, what shall we do? There's no way out of here. We're caught. We're dead. So the man's absolute frustration and fear of what was going to happen is well recounted. But Elisha was such a stoic individual. Verse 16, Elisha's answered, Do not fear. Hey, this isn't a time to be fearful. For those who are with us are more than those who are against us. What was he eating? Well, God's word probably. And he had an understanding of what was happening from God's word. And he understood what the Eternal was going to do. So the servant probably gave him a very strange look, saying, What in the world are you talking about? Who is for us here? Elisha prayed, verse 17, and said, Eternal, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. The Eternal opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire, all around Elisha. Okay, yeah, you have these Arameans out there, but uh, there's, there's a different force out there as well. That the Arameans are not able to contend with in any way whatsoever. The Arameans, the largest or the biggest military force of that day, camped outside the city. But there is something there that is greater a raid for battle against the Arameans, much more impressive, much more lethal than what the man saw in the first instance. How often does that occur? We look at the physical circumstances in life and we don't really appreciate what is out there. The way in which the eternal can take care of his people. Nebuchadnezzar had to learn the same lesson as well. In Daniel chapter 3, we have the account of the idol that he created. And eventually, as a result of that, threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abed- Abednego into the fiery furnace because they wouldn't fall down and worship the image that he had made. In his fury that someone would uh, disobey him, He ordered that the furnace be heated seven times hotter than it had been heated before. You have to ask, how do you burn a body seven times faster? It's already capable of burning people. That's the reason it existed. But now it gets to be seven times hotter. So hot, in fact, that it consumed the people who were throwing 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fiery furnace. Obviously, it just drew, drew all of the oxen out of the air. And the captives couldn't breathe. And they suffocated as they were throwing these men into the fire. But we find in verse Daniel chapter 3 and verse 22, because the king's command was urgent, the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the fiery furnace. To Nebuchadnezzar, that was the end of the story, right? Until the fire died down a little, and he looked in to see how the ashes were doing, and he saw four people walking unbound in the middle of the fire. And he has to ask, how many people do we throw in? Three. Who's the fourth guy? And how did these men end up unbound as opposed to being bound? He was astonished. A very good King James understatement, English understatement. He was astonished. You guarantee he was. He rose in haste and spoke to his counselors saying, didn't we cast three men into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, true, O king. He said, look, there are four in there. And they're walking around. And he said, the fourth, the form of the fourth is like the son of God. He got to see something that human beings don't normally see. And you wonder how many of the rest of them saw the fourth man in the fiery furnace? Or was it just Nebuchadnezzar himself who got to see it? The physical eyes don't see these things. We want the eternal to respond in a way where we see it with our own eyes. The eternal may well be responding for us in a way in which we do not see at this point. So uh, when the resurrection comes, I want to ask Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, did you guys see the fourth person and they're with you? I guess they may not have, right? But if they didn't, they're going to be excited to hear about it. Interesting to know, won't, won't it be one of these days? So the events of Esther follow the same line. Despite the maneuverings of human beings, somebody else is really in charge. Mordecai understands that in a remarkable way. The book of Esther, like many other books of the Bible, has some very despicable displays of human behavior. It starts off early, doesn't it? Because we get to Genesis chapter 4, and Cain kills his brother Abel. Not good. Yeah, the book of Esther has some despicable behavior 
on the part of those who see the world in a particular way. And of course, whoever wrote the book of Esther makes a big point about Haman and his lots. Okay? How did he see life? He saw life as chance. What is going to be propitious? Mordecai, on the other hand, saw life from a totally different perspective. He realized someone greater was in control of it. And his responsibility was to be in harmony with that greater power in a remarkable way. So we start off early with uh, Ahasuerus disposing of his wife. And then they go through this long process whereby Esther is chosen to be the queen, or to be the new queen. The king obviously has a great harem of women, which offends the sensitivities of people in the 20th and 21st centuries in the Western world even when we have to buy all of our oil from the Saudis to drive our nice cars around. Okay, we be a little short-sighted at times. It, uh, you might say, does it offend God's sensitivities? I would say that it does. Because Ahasuerus had no idea of what marriage was all about in exactly the same way as this world fails to understand what marriage is all about. We have governments think it can define marriage in a way which is going to please the electorate and so forth. You might say the book starts by telling us about a group of people, the, the actions of a group of people who don't see God in their life at all. Life is about them and their own way and what they need. And so literally right from the beginning of the book of Esther, we have two ways being played out for us. On the one hand, we have the likes of Ahasuerus and his counselors, Haman and his counselors, conducting their life in a particular way. On the other hand, if you read the book, you'll find that Esther, Mordecai, and those associated with them lead their lives in a very different way, a contrasting way. Notice the outcome of Esther. From a situation that looked bleak in Esther chapter 4 and verse 12, when Haman has brought about his edict, and the Jews are going to be killed uh, at a particular time. Esther chapter 4 and verse 12 and the following verses. Esther realized she was putting her life on the line to go before the king to ask for his involvement in the situation. So you might say the conclusion of the matter, but down in Esther chapter 9 and verse 1. In the twelfth month, it said... Esther 9, verse 1. In the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On that day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped 
to overpower them, the opposite occurred, and that the Jews themselves overpowered those that hated them. As I said, two ways of living are being set out before us throughout the book. A human way, based on human understanding, based on power and control, is shown in chapter 1. It's based on chance, as I said, because in chapter 3 we see Haman rolling the dice, the lot, to work out the propitious time to kill the Jews. It's based on the roll of the dice in some way. Despite the lack of the name or instruction of God, there is a clear commitment on the part of Mordecai and Esther to God and his ways. The Jews themselves collectively also knew how to respond to God when facing a trial and call upon him for intervention. So let's spend a little time looking at some of the ways in which Mordecai and Esther respond to the trial in a godly way, as opposed to Haman and Ahasuerus' approach to life. In chapter 2, Mordecai puts Esther forward as a candidate for the role of queen. He doesn't give us a lot of explanation. But we know that he sees a greater purpose in their lives. Their lives are not ruled by fate, so to speak, or by chance. Their lives are ruled by purpose. If the eternal God saved us from Egypt, the eternal God is not going to allow us to be destroyed now. He has shown his purpose for his people. And that is not going to disappear. And so Mordecai operates from a very different mindset than Haman. You might say the situation of Mordecai putting Esther forward parallels that of Moses being set afloat in the Nile River in a bullish basket. We find in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 2 talking about Moses and his birth. And it talks about his mother when she saw him that he was a goodly child. Now come on mothers, all children are goodly, right? Just ask a grandmother, right? Or a mother, they're all good. So what is really being stated here? There's something else being conveyed here about what the parents knew about Moses and about God's plan for his people. It's not explained, but we're introduced and we can speculate about it at best. And we find the same thing in terms of Esther. Esther is put forward as a candidate for the queen by Mordecai with a similar enigmatic situation as we might have of Moses. You see, their lives were not ruled by chance as Haman's. Mordecai told Esther that she had come to this situation where she was queen in a time such as this. It was for a purpose, for a godly purpose, even although God's name is not mentioned. 
chapter 4 of Esther in verse 13. Mordecai told them to answer Esther because Esther had been communicating with Mordecai about the edict of Haman. And Esther was told by Mordecai, he said, Do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this point, relief and deliverance will arrive for the Jews from another place. God is going to intervene. You have the opportunity of being the point of intervention at this point. And Mordecai said, if you fail to do this, the eternal will provide another intervention. But you and your father's house will perish. We will die. Yet, who knows whether you came to the kingdom for such a time as this. So he, giving that enigmatic understanding, this is what you're there to be doing. You are the deliverer of the people at the physical level. The concern of Mordecai was for his people rather than his own self-aggrandizement. One of the beautiful things if you read and study Mordecai throughout this book, he's never in something for himself. It's not about him. It's about the people, God's people. It wasn't for Esther to become queen, to become important, and so to elevate Mordecai by himself. It was to save the people. Esther was put forward as queen because Mordecai understood the destruction of the people was at hand. He did. We don't know how well he understood it. We're not told that detail. Did Mordecai put Esther forward as a candidate, allowing her selection as queen to be in God's hand? Reading the book of Esther very closely, I would have to say that would be a fair assumption to make. He realized that it was a means whereby God's people were going to be delivered. And they were going to be provided for as well. So we have a very different approach. They are connected with the plan of God. A second aspect of Mordecai and, and uh, you might say by extension, Esther's behavior is given to us in chapter 3. Haman has been introduced and he's given great office by King Ahasuerus. And so we find in chapter 3 and verse 1, if you would turn there, after these things, Ahasuerus promoted Haman the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him and set a seat above all the princes that were with him. So you might say in terms of uh, uh, European countries, he became the prime minister under the president. We take the French system, we have a president, then we have a prime minister under that who organized the cabinet and so forth. Of course, they didn't call them prime ministers in those days. They're often called grand vizier, a person who had a responsibility for the nation. And so he was given great office in verse 2. We find that all the king's servants who were within king's gate 
bowed and paid homage to Haman, for so the king had commanded concerning him. But Mordecai would not bow or pay homage. When the king's servants who were within the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? It happened they spoke to him daily, so this wasn't a one-off event. This was a continuing situation. And he would not listen to them. They told it to Haman to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For Mordecai had told them that he was a Jew. So this has something to do with being a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay him homage, Haman was filled with wrath. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone, for they had told him of the people of Mordecai. Instead, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus, the people of Mordecai. Power had clearly gone to this man's head. He was overcome by it. Mordecai won't pay homage to Haman. We read that and it doesn't really mean much because of the way it's translated into English. I've seen people pay homage. I was in Lagos on one occasion for the Days of Unleavened Bread and one of our elders from Benin came across and said, I want to take you across to Benin and uh, meet the brethren, the French-speaking brethren. I said, I don't have a visa for Benin. And he said, no way, my friend. My uncle will take care of that. And I said, who's your uncle? He said, he's the king of Badadjuri. Okay. Badadjuri is a state alongside Lagos, between Lagos and Benin to the west of it. And he was a tribal king. Of course, the people of Badadjuri live in both Benin and Nigeria, of which Lagos was at that point the capital. And uh, so on. So I got in a taxi with uh, this elder and his father, and we went off to see the father's brother, the king of Badadjuri. I had no idea what I was going to come upon. And I got to Badadjuri, and I was ushered into the throne room. Now, don't get carried away with this is hocus pocus. This man was a lawyer. The king was a lawyer. He was the vice chancellor or in charge of one of the largest universities in the country. In terms of politics, this man was not to be messed with in terms of Nigeria. He was a power mover. And so I was escorted into his presence, and he sat on a dais, on a big chair, I guess you call it a throne, Uh, on top of a dais and a beautiful wood floor like this here in front of him. And his brother came and flopped face down on the floor in front of him, spread-eagled on the floor. He paid homage to his brother, you might say, as the king. Anybody else who walked in that room before the king, flat on the floor, I is a foreigner, was able to get by with the dignity of just nodding my head in the king's direction and uh, so forth, as the elder also got, got away with that as well, quite remarkably. And they were very, very well connected because our elder's younger sister was actually living as part of a king's household. 
a very, very pleasant young lady. So I, I had uh, an incredible experience. And, of course, the king then came and wrote out a letter to the uh, immigration officers in both Nigeria and Benin and basically telling, give this man free pass. I got to the border, and the elder gave that letter to the uh, uh, border post with my passport. Through you go. I still have a letter. <laughs> uh, quite a remarkable thing. But you see, those people were doing, you might say, bowing, doing obeisance to the king. But this isn't really what's the problem here in the book of Esther. Because the word that is translated homage is related to a word that is used in the second commandment. Mordecai would not bow down and do homage to this man because that would mean he was breaking the second commandment. How does that describe Mordecai? Mordecai is prepared to put his life on the line to obey whom? Not Haman, not Ahasuerus, but to obey the eternal. A remarkable situation. In that part of the world, of course, the king was part God. You might say the same was true in terms of the pharaoh in Egypt. When people prostrated themselves before the king, they were in fact breaking the second commandment. You shall not bow down to them. You're not to worship these people. In reality, Mordecai was saying to Haman, to Ahasuerus, to all of those observing, I am not going to sacrifice my principles and my relationship with my God for the benefit of his man and his ego. He would not prostrate himself. He would not pay homage or more explicitly worship Haman. So this verb is used, the same verb is used in Exodus chapter 20 and here in, in, uh, in uh, Esther chapter 3. So the pres- despite the pressures on Mordecai from those around about him, he refused to compromise his way of life that he had been called to live. He was going to live by it. So Mordecai is presented to us as a person obedient to the law of God. So is God present in the book of Esther? Yeah, his law is very much so. And he has people who are observing that. The third lesson for us in terms of Mordecai and Esther is how do we respond to trials in our life? Each and every one of us have them. I would hate to ask for a show of hands of anyone who's not had a trial. I'm sure there'll be no hands go up whatsoever. But here we have the participants of this time. When trials arose, the response was that of sackcloth and ashes with fasting. If we look at the use of sackcloth and ashes throughout Scripture, We find it used to indicate repentance and the seeking of the eternal's will and intervention in a person's life. 
You just don't put on sackcloth and ashes because it's got a Chanel label on it. Right? You don't do that. Because it's horrible stuff. Okay? People in the Middle Ages used to wear sackcloth shirts to afflict themselves. We don't do that today. We like to put silk on or something nice and comfortable and uh, something that will pamper our skin rather than afflict our skin. So uh, people didn't do that. They didn't just put on sackcloth and ashes because it was Lent. No question of that. People put on sackcloth and ashes because they realized something was wrong. Something was amiss with their relationship with someone, and they wanted to put that relationship right. And in most cases, the relationship was with the eternal. They wanted to humble themselves so that they could have the right relationship with their God. Throughout Scripture, the use of uh, sackcloth and ashes and fasting is used to indicate repentance and seeking of God's will and intervention. Fasting was well understood by these people. Daniel, a century earlier, had talked about it at length and had practiced it himself, Daniel chapter 9. Zechariah, the prophet, writing perhaps some 50 years prior to the book of Esther, had talked about fasting in chapters 7 and 8. Ezra and Nehemiah, who came on the scene over, you might say, but were contemporaries of Esther, knew of a right approach of fasting. Ezra chapter 8, Nehemiah chapter 1. They knew how to respond when problems arose. When trials came on the horizon and created difficulties for people, they knew what to do. Fast and take the problems to our Father instead of resolving them ourselves. So their response to the problem was not a political one of seeing who they could get on their side at the human level. It was take it to the highest power, to the eternal. The fourth aspect we can learn of their approach is given when Esther approaches the king at the banquet. Two occasions, both banquets, the king made a most generous offer to Esther. Esther chapter 7 and verse 2. The second time the king made this offer. On the second day of a banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, What is your petition, Queen Esther? You don't put on a banquet for the king unless there's something to be gotten out of it. He knew what banquets were for. He knew why people did things for him. And he said, tell me, what's your petition? It shall be granted you. What is your request? Up to half the kingdom it shall be done. Wow. He obviously liked her, right? There was something very attractive about Esther. That's a big offer. Look at it from a human point of view. What a break. You take it, and then you move all the Jews into that part of the kingdom, and the problem solved. 
until the king wants the other half back again. Right? Or the king dies and his heir says, it's all mine. And the problem is recommenced. Okay. So Esther could easily have said from a human perspective, give me half the kingdom and all the Jews can move the, remove a cross into my half and we'll get away from this edict. But what would have had to said about Esther? Would it say she's an opportunist who is interested in getting something for herself? Notice her response to the king in verse 3. Queen Esther answered and said, If I've found favor in your sight, O king, and it pleases the king, let my life be given me of my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would hold my tongue. Although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. She said, we're going to be destroyed. I'm asking you for our lives. Why? Because I want to live. You're going to suffer loss. It's now about you. It's not about me. It's about what you're going to suffer as a result of our death. So there's nothing for her for herself, you might say. What, O oh king, are you going to lose as a result of our annihilation? It's an interesting request on the part of Esther. And it's worth your while, you might say, making a note of what Solomon said to the Eternal when the Eternal appeared to him at Gibeon because there's a similarity here. There's a great echoing of what Solomon had said to the eternal. It's not about me. It's about your people. It's about what you need or what your people need, not what I need for myself. So I ask you to make a note of uh, 1 Kings chapter 3, and uh, you can read that entire chapter. We find in verse 11 of that chapter, 1 Kings chapter 3, where the Eternal said to Solomon, because you've asked this thing, you've not asked for something for yourself. You've not asked for long life for yourself. You haven't asked riches for yourself. You haven't asked the life of your enemies. But you've asked yourself for yourself understanding to discern judgment. He said, I'm doing it. I'm going to give it to you. I'll give you a wise and understanding heart. So there's none not been anyone like you beforehand, nor will any rise after you. Well, Esther comes, good second. She knew how to make her request, not for herself, but for the needs of other people. So I think there's a great parallel between Esther's response to Ahasuerus and Solomon and Solomon's response to the eternal because it was about others and not themselves the way of life that Mordecai and Esther lived was driven by let's use a little bit of church speak outgoing concern it was the way of give as opposed to the way of get 
Harmon, Ahasuerus, all of those courtiers, all represented the way of get. We have two people here, center stage in this book, who are representing the way of give. Who is the author of the way of give? The person who is standing behind the curtains in this book, the eternal, in a remarkable way. So Esther was offered half a kingdom, and she said, no, that's not what I want. It's a life of my people, because you are going to suffer loss as a result of this. So there is at least a fifth aspect of godly behavior on the part of Mordecai and Esther in the book. We've already looked at not being driven by chance, but by purpose, not breaking the commandments, fasting, taking problems to be eternal, two ways of life, give versus get. And then the uh, fifth element, which in many ways is an expansion, you might say, of the fourth point we've had, but is worthwhile noting as a fifth point. Consider the reaction when deliverance is provided. Mordecai sent out a message, a proclamation to the people Esther chapter 9 and verse 21. That they were to establish this fast of this feast of Purim on the 14th and 15th days of the month Adar, Thursday and Friday of this past week, as the days on which the Jews had rest from their enemies, as the month which was turned from sorrow to joy, and for them from mourning to a holiday. It sounds good, doesn't it? Have a blast! Let's live it up! But it Mordecai's instruction doesn't end there, does it? Because we carry on into verse 22. It said, They would make them days of feasting and joy, of sending presents to one another and gifts to the poor. The remarkable instruction should remind you of something else. How do you keep a godly feast? You make sure that the widows, the fatherless, and the stranger are taken care of so that nobody gets left out. Everybody is a participant. He was an enlightened man in many ways, but he had to be because he was a servant of God. He realized very clearly this wasn't just a time for those who have the means to rejoice, but as it means for everybody to rejoice. Make sure no one is left out. That's part of a way of give, as opposed to the way of get. He focuses outgoing concern upon others rather than the self. Loving the neighbor as oneself, looking out for them, being concerned for them. So you might conclude that the people were instructed to be in harmony with the great commandment of loving your neighbor as yourself. What a contrast. One self-indulgent party to start the book. Another to encompass everybody at the end. Not self-indulgent, but bring everybody to rejoice. Make sure everybody is able to rejoice. Even although the name of God is not mentioned, What I've tried to convey to you is that consistently Esther and Mordecai lived in accordance with God's standard. 
that was the way they lived their lives. And if the eternal didn't appear to be there to respond, that didn't change. They knew he was going to be there to take care of them. And isn't that what faith is all about? What you don't see, the reality of what you don't see. This is an example of living by faith. The rest of the people had an appreciation for the God of Israel through the lives of Esther and Mordecai. The eternal was being reflected through the decisions and choices that people made throughout this short book. Like us, they were to be lights in a dark world. They were to be different. And like the elect, flesh was saved alive. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 22. You know it very well, unless those days would be shortened. But for the elect's sake, no one would be saved alive. What carnage might have been produced in the Persian Empire? We have no idea. We know what followed after, and so forth. The eternal, the God that Mordecai and Esther worshipped, is a God of people, of history and events. He's not a God of philosophy. He's a God of action. Even when we can't see him acting. Note Paul's instructions to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 13. He said, No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. But God is faithful, and he wants you and me to be faithful as well, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will always make the way of escape that you're able to bear it. Our Father is there for us. Jesus Christ is there for us. The God family is watching over their people. You and I have to learn that lesson that we don't have to be able to see God to establish among them that he is there. Remarkable uh, event in their turn, in their life. Another interesting thing about the whole account of Esther and Mordecai is that when God doesn't seem to be intervening, what do you do? You carry on serving him just as you should do, without any variation. Our Father can see us. He may not seem to be intervening in a trial of our lives at a particular point in time, but that doesn't mean to say but we then compromise our situation to accommodate ourselves because God is not intervening. We don't take things into our own hands. No, you carry on living the life to which you've been called. I have to carry on living the life to which I've been called. I can't allow myself to compromise. First Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. <clears throat> In First Peter chapter 1 and verse 19, it talks about Jesus Christ being our Passover from the foundation of the earth. And it goes on talking about us being redeemed as a result of that. Let's pick it up in chapter 2 and verse 9. Verse nine. Because what Peter is talking about is 
what sort of people we are to be as a result of that, given this Passover that we are to celebrate in a month's time, or a few days under a month's time. What sort of person should I be as a result of that? And so in verse 9 he said, you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Mordecai had a sense of that. He understood that he was part of God's people and that the eternal was going to intervene for them. Do I? That's a question I have to answer for myself. You have to answer for yourself. And why are we a chosen generation? Carrying on there, he said, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Mordecai and Esther proclaimed the light of God's way of life in a pretty dark, dismal world called the Persian Empire. He said, verse 10, You who are not a people but are now of a people of God who has not obtained mercy but have now obtained mercy, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against us all. Mordecai and Esther were your quintessential sojourners and pilgrims, captives. They abstained from the Persian way of life. They maintained the godly way of life because they war against the soul. So we have a remarkable book here. We, as people in the 21st century, in the year 2018, live in a world of bondage. A world of abuse. It's all around us. Most people living in the Western world today have no concept that slavery is a bigger issue today than it was two centuries ago. Do you realize that? That's the world in which we live. It's hard for us to envisage those things in our enlightened world. But this world is in bondage to abuse, to slavery, to all sorts of things. Just as the Persian Empire was in bondage to the same God of the world who rules today. You and I have the opportunity to serve someone else. Just as Mordecai and Esther had the opportunity to serve a greater power. The Apostle Peter speaks to this very aspect in 1 Peter chapter 1. Just go back a page there to verse 8, where he said, Whom, having not seen, you love. We don't see the eternal in the book of Esther. We don't see the name Elohim, or we don't see the name the eternal recorded there. But these people obviously had a love for his way of life even although they couldn't see his name. We, likewise, have not seen Jesus Christ. We are going to gather together for the Passover to remember his death. In taking of a bread and wine, we're going to renew that covenant relationship with him to live by his standards, just as Esther and Mordecai lived by his standards. But we've never seen him. We haven't seen him. Carrying on in verse 8, he said, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. 
I think you come to the end of, of the book of Esther, and there's a great amount of inexpressible joy in terms of Esther and Mordecai when they found the way in which the eternal the God of Israel worked to end their problems. You and I have the same situation, brethren. Each and every one of us faces problems in this life. There is someone who we can't necessarily see who is there to help us. He may be behind the curtains on the stage, but he is there for us and always will be there for us. We don't see him. We simply see the end results. We know how it's going to end. And like Mordecai and Esther, while we don't see him, we live the way of life that he would have us live. And so you come down to uh, uh, John chapter 20 with uh, Mordecai, not Mordecai, rather Thomas, doubting Thomas, wanting to put his fingers in the hands hands of Jesus and his fist in his side and uh, to see those holes that have been so cruelly inflicted upon Jesus Christ. Verse 29 of chapter 20, Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. That's each and every one of us here this afternoon. Each and every one of us who's keeping God's Sabbath today. So let's wrap it up, brethren. We started off at the beginning with three comments. Firstly, the name of God is never mentioned in the book. So I ask you, does God have to be seen? I think the character of God shines through very clearly in terms of Esther and Mordecai's life. They are a reflection of the character of the God of Israel they served. The question I have to ask myself is, am I like that too? Do I reflect that? Secondly, the book is not obviously referenced in the New Testament. But does the New Testament talk about the same problems that Mordecai and Esther faced? We've touched on a few this afternoon. Of course it does. It speaks to the same problems. And what about the sensitivities of the feminists and women's movement today about the treatment of women? Well, I would ask you another question. Has anybody ever been treated in a godly way in an ungodly kingdom How come you're so foolish to expect to be treated in a godly way in an ungodly world? Forget it. It's not going to happen. It's a time to wake up. The only time the godly treatment of people will become reality is in the kingdom of God. And you and I are preparing for that today, and we have a responsibility to love one another, and treat one another in a godly way. And we come to John chapter 13 and verse 34, and Jesus said, By this all men will know you are my disciples, in that you love one another as I have loved you. So occurring a month before Passover, the Feast of Purim helps us appreciate what we're about. Yes, We live in a battle zone. 
This is as much a battle zone as it was for the children of Israel in Egypt as for the Jews living in Persia. We are called with a calling to live a way of life that is going to bring deliverance from the world. We appreciate that. In some ways, the Feast of Purim removes Passover from its distant past in Egypt and brings it up to a sense of reality for you and me in terms of the lives we live today. It makes it real for us. It gets our minds focused on the ultimate meaning of Passover, the salvation of all mankind. God hasten the day. Thank <laughs> you.